Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look briefly this morning at Genesis 3 and 4. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome all those who are joining us via our live stream. Thank you so much for joining with us this morning. The venue service down the hall, Reach Church DeSoto, grateful to have you with us as well. Early in the service, we uh, acknowledged our, our veterans, always a very, very special time in the life of our church uh, to be able to do that. We haven't been able to do it in the way we did it this morning for about three years due to COVID, and so uh, we've missed that. Um, it's special, a special time for us as a church. But there's another group of people we would like to recognize as well that are very, very important to us, that serve often in very thankless ways, and that's our first responders. And so what I want to ask is if you're a first responder, if you serve within our police force, you uh, serve within our fire and rescue, or, uh, or a paramedic, would you, would you please stand so we can recognize you and thank you for your service to our community and our nation. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We're praying for you as well as you put yourself in harm's way every day uh, to, to protect us, to serve us, to serve our community. And again, I know often it's a thankless job, but I pray that you know that you have the support of this church behind you. We love you, we're praying for you, and we wanna encourage you today as well. Well, this morning, Genesis 3, I, I don't know about you, but... Uh, there's days I get up and I look at the news and I think, surely this can't be real. <laughs> you ever do that? <laughs> Almost like we can't be surprised anymore. Um, <laughs> did you ever think we'd have a Supreme Court justice that can't define what a woman is, you know? Um, if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny, wouldn't it? Um, we got representatives in our uh, government that believe a man can get pregnant. I mean, what, <laughs> what have we come to? And if you're like me, sometimes you have a tendency to say, Where, how did we get here? How did we get so far away from truth? And we're tempted to look back at certain events, but this morning I want to go back to the beginning. Uh, in our world, it's commonplace whenever you have problems that you want to progress. You want to move forward, new ideas and new solutions with the hopes that they'll fix things. As believers in Jesus Christ, whenever we have problems, we don't initially go forward, we go back. We go back to the truth of God's word. And we say, what has God said? What has God declared? This morning, we're gonna go back. we we'll go back to the beginning. And guess what we're gonna be reminded of this morning? The problem we're facing today is the same old problem we've been dealing with since Adam and Eve. And do you know what we're gonna find out the solution is? It's the same solution that God declared in Genesis 3.15. And you know what we're gonna realize? The conflict that we're, in, we're facing today it's as old as Cain and Abel. And it will continue to be a conflict until Christ returns. So we're gonna go back this morning. Let's pray together, then we'll work our way through God's word. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word that we can go back, that we do have a standard, a plumb line that we align our lives to. And Lord, I pray that you instruct us and teach us by means of your word today. You give us hearts to hear and to obey, 
And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, they'd see the beauty of Christ who came to save them, that he is our only hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis 3, look, look at verse 14. I'm very familiar with this. We looked at it not too long ago. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 3, you have the fall of man. God's given them one rule. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you'll die. They did and they did. So there's a, there's a curse that God brings upon the man and the woman. He'll bring it upon the serpent, also the animal realm. In fact, you see it in verse 14 as he speaks to the serpent. God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you'll eat all the days of your life. So now there's a curse. Curse on creation, man, the woman, serpent. We got a problem. But in the very next verse, the very next verse, God provides the solution. It's so critical. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. Look with me, verse 15. It says, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. I'm gonna put enmity, very literally, just hatred. There'll be hatred between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Between your seed. Who is your seed? He's talking to serpent. He's talking to Satan. That Satan has children. Who are they? All of us apart from faith in Jesus Christ. All of us are born sinners. We're a born nature child. Born, born to be wild. We rebel. That's how we're born. Man is not innately. Some of y'all don't know Steppenwolf. Good night. What are we doing here? Hi, blank faces, Pastor Jim. Good night. You're trying to act godly in church, isn't it? Like you don't know that stuff. We're born rebels. We looked at it last week in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working, the sons of disobedience. All of us are born enslaved to sin. We've all been infected by Adam's sin. So there's gonna be enmity between your seed, Satan, your children, and the seed of the woman. And the question is, who is the seed of the woman? Well, you look at the very next phrase and it says what? He. He will bruise you on the head. He, one man, one singular man, born of a woman, virgin born, one man. God declares right here that there's only gonna be one solution to the problem of man's sinfulness. And it's not religion, it's not education, it's not politics, it's not legislation. The solution is one man. Who is that man? Jesus Christ. What does he go on to say? Between your seed and the seed of the woman, and he will bruise you on the head. Meaning there's coming a man who is virgin born, who is going to defeat Satan. He's going to stomp on Satan's head. He's going to defeat him. He's gonna defeat the enemy of sin, Satan, and death. And then what does it say? And you will bruise him on the heel. Meaning there's gonna come a man, he's gonna be a virgin-born man, he's gonna come, he's gonna defeat Satan, but he'll be wounded in the transaction. In other words, what God is saying right here in the shadows is that the solutions to man's problem, this is absolutely wonderful, 
right here in just one sentence after the fall of man, he says there's going to be somebody who's going to come. He's going to be a virgin-born man. He's going to defeat Satan, but he himself will have to die. The first gospel. God says the solution to man, man's sinfulness, is one man, Jesus Christ. And in fact, for the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to trace the man's lineage, aren't we? Uh, That he will be of Seth, Uh, He'll be of Noah, he'll be of Shem, he'll be of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jesse, David, and ultimately Joseph, the husband of Mary. Here's your problem, sin. Here's your solution, Jesus Christ. And then what does God do? If you look down further in chapter 3, in verse 21, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So God takes the skins of a man. How do you get the skin of an animal? That animal has to first what? Has to die. God right there institutes sacrifice as a sign of the promise. Can you imagine this? Adam and Eve have never seen death before. They've never seen anything die. Can you imagine how traumatic it must have been that God says something's got to happen and he goes over there and takes one of the animal kingdom And he strikes it, and blood is shed. But what is God picturing before them? That when you sin, someone has to die. Sin cannot go unpunished. And God will there institute sacrifice as a sign of the promise that he's going to send somebody on their behalf who will defeat death and defeat Satan, but he himself will have to die in our place. There's sin, that's the problem. There's solution, Jesus Christ. And then God also said there, I'm gonna put enmity between your seed, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. Do you realize that uh, the Bible only recognizes two races of people in the entire world? There's the children of the devil and the children of God. How do you become a child of the devil? You're just born. You're born a sinner. You're born enslaved to sin. Man is not innately good, an object of wrath. How do you become a child of God? You're reborn through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that won't preach on CNN, and in Congress, they kick me out. But let me tell you something. It's biblically true. And what God said is there's going to be enmity between these two groups of people. And you can see the enmity. Can't you see the conflict running throughout the pages of Scripture? There's always this conflict. And in fact, don't we see it in our world today? Where does it begin? Well, it begins in chapter 4. So look in chapter 4. We're going to see the beginning of this conflict. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now the man had relationship, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So she has a child, his first birth. You think about these things. Can you imagine Adam and Eve getting to see the, the, the first birth of a child? It must have been overwhelming to them. And she says, here's Cain. Cain, the name means begotten of God. I think there's something in Eve that's probably thinking, maybe this is the, the child of promise. Maybe this is the man that God has promised. And then they have another child, and they name that child Abel. Do you know what the name Abel means? It means vanity. Uh, It's like with the first child, she's got hope. And then she sees that child, and she has another child, and she says, it's all vanity. (laughs) 
But there's a wonderful recognition there that Adam and Eve begin to recognize that salvation is not going to come through one of us because we're sinners. And so they have these two children. They're very much different. One, a tiller of the ground, one, a keeper of the flocks. In verse three, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the, first, of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So they're bringing an offering. What are they doing bringing an offering? Well, we already said, God has instituted sacrifice. What is Abel raising uh, a flock for, a sheep? Why is he raising sheep? They're, they're, at this point, they're still vegetarians. Why, praise God, later they get to eat meat, amen? But they're still eating vegetables back then. What are they, what are they raising sheep for? They're raising them for sacrifice. God has instituted sacrifice, a, a blood offering as a reminder of the promise that he would send somebody. And Abel is a keeper of the flocks and he takes one of the first things of his flock and he's, he's offering this sacrifice in faith. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, that he offered it in faith. That was really the differentiating factor between Abel and Cain. He offered it in faith. See, Abel had an understanding that I'm a sinner. Abel had an understanding. I can't save myself. And God has promised he's gonna send somebody. And in a recognition of that promise and in an act of faith towards God that he would send somebody he takes that animal and he, he sacrifices it unto the Lord and says God I'm placing my faith in the one who will come and die for me but Cain what does he do he takes some of the works of his hands he takes some of his barley he throws it before the Lord and I think the idea in Cain's mind is I don't want I don't want to have to go to Abel and ask for one of his flock Abel was the younger brother. You older siblings, how would you like to have to get in line and go ask your younger brother for help so that you could offer sacrifice? Cain doesn't want to humble himself. Cain doesn't want to admit he's sinner. He says, my works ought to be good enough. I'm the firstborn. I'm the best of the best. I ought to be able to come to God with what I've done with my works, and surely God will be impressed with me, and he'll be, be pleased with my offering. So one is offering in faith with the, with the idea of the promise that God would send somebody, and the other is bringing his works. And it says for Abel's offering, he had regard. It pleased him. But for Cain's offering, he had no regard. Do you know what God is saying? here right here in Genesis 4 he's saying that there are not many ways to me there's only one way to God you don't get to pick and choose what way you come to God God says you come one way you come through faith in Jesus Christ you come through faith in Messiah who would come and die on your behalf for your sins but Cain in no regard you can't come that. In fact, when, when you went into the temple, in order to go into God's presence, you had to first pass the altar. Do you know what God was saying to the people of Israel? Every time they entered into the temple, you don't come to me apart from the shedding of blood. Somebody has to die. Blood must be shed. You've got to trust in me. So God has no regard for Cain's offering. And what is the response of Cain in verse 5? So Cain became very angry. He's mad. Why is he mad? Because Cain doesn't like to be told that he's a moral failure and he's a sinner and he's no better than his brother and he has to humble himself, admit he's wrong, and trust in the promise of the one who will come. He doesn't like that message very much. 
And quite frankly, the message of the the gospel and the cross have always been offensive to the perishing. You don't believe me? Go out this afternoon, meet up with somebody and say, hey, do you know what? I'm a sinner, but you're a sinner too. You're a moral failure. You're an object of wrath. You can do no good on your own. You have no hope within yourself. Your only hope is that you would humble yourself, admit you're a sinner, and trust in this one man, Jesus Christ, who lived and died for you, and that's your only hope of salvation. See how they respond with you. Man doesn't tend to respond real well to being told he's a sinner. Neither does Cain. I don't like being told I can't do it on my own. It's the pride of man that often prevents salvation, that I can do it on my own. My works are good enough. And Cain is offended that God would tell him that you gotta admit you're a sinner and humble yourself and trust in me and believe in the promise of the one who would come. His countenance fell. Look at verse six. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? He's calling him to repentance. He says in verse seven, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. God is telling Abel, he knows, that's what's amazing about this, God knows exactly what's going on in Abel's heart. He knows the struggle that's occurring and God comes to him and says, Abel, you better think about the decision you're about to make. Uh, you, as parents, you ever do that with your kids? My parents did it with me. It was always scary. We'll let you make the decision, but you better be really careful. In other words, don't make the wrong decision. And God is coming to Cain and saying to him, you better be careful. The pathways are about to diverge, and you don't want to go the wrong way. In fact, he says sin is crouching. Sin is pictured here. It's the first real picture of sin, and it's pictured as a predator, meaning you can't cohabitate with sin. Sin is like a mountain lion. Would you spend the night in a cabin with a mountain lion? No, because that mountain lion would eat you. You either have to deal with that mountain lion and kill it, or you run, but you can't cohabitate. And you know what God is telling Cain right here? You either deal with your sin on the basis of faith and trust in the one who will come with you uh, to die for you, or that sin is gonna destroy you. You either deal with it in faith or it's gonna take you out. Well, look at the response of Cain. Cain in verse eight told his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And the path diverges here. Cain starts out with so much promise. And then here, he he becomes the first murderer. Listen, when, when you... When a person rejects God, when they reject Christ, when they turn their back on him, there is no limit to the depths to which they will not descend. It's a scary path. Have you ever looked at somebody and you see the decisions they're making and you just kind of shake your head and you say, you can't do anything. And you just say, boy, they're they're in for a world of hurt. That's Cain. He's rejecting God. He's walking away, and it's gonna get bad. Look at what it says. Verse 10, he, God said to him, what have you done? Or back up to verse nine. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. I'm on my brother's keeper. You know what's funny? He tries to lie to God. By the way, not a good thing to do. You can't lie to God. You can fool a lot of people. You can't fool God. God knows. Verse 10, he said, and what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. I know I'm a just God. Sin's gotta be punished. 
In verse 11, now you're cursed from the ground. There's gotta be consequences, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it'll no longer yield its strength to you. You'll be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Sin always has consequences. He says, you're gonna work really hard. It's gonna come to no success. Look at verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Do you know what Cain says? That's not fair. Do you, do you ever see a world that people do this? That it's, it's interesting to me. You, there's people out there they will reject the truth of God's word. They'll say, I don't want God's word. I don't want truth. I don't want Christ. I don't want that stuff. I don't believe in it, whatever. They, they say, I don't, I don't get that. I'm not going that way. I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. But when bad things happen, they say, God's not fair. See, I don't wanna acknowledge God. I don't wanna give thanks. don't really wanna follow him. But he better be nice to me. He better give me a nice, happy life. It doesn't work that way. You can't live however you want to live and then expect God to turn around and bless you. It doesn't work that way. And it says, verse 14, Behold, you've driven me from this day, from the face of the ground, and from, the face, from your face I'll be hidden, and I'll be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. What he deserves is death. That's what the punishment should have done. God is gonna be gracious. The thing that you see throughout scripture is the graciousness and the, and the patience of God. Verse 15, so the Lord said to him, therefore whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. God puts a mark on him and Cain is gonna kind of become a warning to the entire world that this is what happens when you reject me. This is what happens when you Walk away from me. And then in verses 16 and following, you know what you get to see? You get to see a civilization that is built upon a man like Cain who rejects God, who rejects truth, and rejects salvation by faith. So look at this. This is a picture of civilization when you reject God. Verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of, of, of the, the Lord and, and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Notice there, Cain went out. Adam and Eve were forced out. You know what Cain does right here? He walks away. He's just gonna walk away from God. God told him you're gonna wander and what has Cain decided to do? I'm gonna settle down. God, you said wander, we'll just see about that. He has a rebellious heart. Settles in the land of Nod, 17. Cain had relations with his wife, she conceived, gave birth to Enoch. He built a city, called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. So he's gonna, what Cain's gonna try to do now, he's gonna try to fabricate success without God. That's, that's what the world does. We're gonna to try to do a workaround on God and have success without him. Verse 18, now to Enoch was born Irad. Irad became the, the father of Mahujel, and Mahujel became the father of Methusel, and Methusel became the father of Lamech. You'll notice on the ends of these names, you got that L suffix. That L suffix, is a, it's the name of God, but it's the generic name of God, not the covenantal name of God. But what you have here is you've got a group of people that have a knowledge of God. They have an understanding of who God is, but they got no love for God. No heart to obey him. They just know about him. How do we know that? Well, look in verse 19. Laman, uh, Lamech took to himself two wives. What did God say was the original design for marriage? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. God has determined, he's ordained this institution of marriage as a relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. But now you've got a group of people, they're walking away from God, they're rejecting his truth, and the first institution to be defamed is the institution of marriage. We're gonna reject God's design, and we're gonna do whatever we wanna do. And by the way, whenever you reject the truth of God, you always will have the demeaning of women. He's gonna take two wives. 
Who do you think gets the short end of that stick? Whenever there's the rejection of the truth of God's word, women will always get the short end of the stick. And so, takes two wives. Um, find my place here. Talk amongst yourself while I find my place here. <laughs> Verse 19, Lamech two, two wives. The name of one was Ada, the name of the other was Zillah. Verse 20, Ada gave birth to Jabel, the father of those who dwell in the tents and have livestock. He's gonna have livestock, the agricultural success. Uh, look at verse 21. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. It, it, that's the arts. music. They're gonna advance. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. They're advancing in science and, and technology. I mean, you see all these advancements. They're becoming more educated. They're, they're becoming uh, more agriculturally advanced. They're gonna make advances in technology. They're gonna make advances in all these other areas, science. And you would think, you would think with all these advances, now surely they'll become better people. But isn't that the way our world thinks? If we could just advance a little further, then we'd be good. Well, it doesn't work that way. Not without God, because look at what happens in verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. What was shameful has now been a thing that he's rejoicing about. Cain killed a man. Listen, I killed a guy and didn't even do anything to me. I killed a child. I killed a boy. Uh, I, I, I'm... I'm happy about it. I'm rejoicing in it. Isn't it interesting today? The things that at one time were shameful are the things that now our culture rejoices in as a badge of honor. It's the degrading of society whenever you take away the truth of God's word. And then in verse 24, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, 77-fold. You know what he's doing there? He's mocking the judgment of God. He's saying, I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do and God can't do anything to me. There's no judgment, there's no God, there's no whatever, no accountability. I can live however I wanna live. And what we're intended to see here is the picture of what happens when the path of man becomes a path of turning away from the truth of God's word. Whenever you reject God, you reject his word, you reject his truth, you reject salvation through faith, you exalt the reason of man. This is what happens every time. That you may see man advancing in education, science, technology, all these other, medicine. There'll be all these advances, but morally and spiritually, they're tanking. This is what happens every time. That you can be smart and intelligent and educated and have more degrees than a thermometer, but if you can't make a moral decision on the basis of truth, you're a dead man walking. And it's true of individuals, and it's true of any society or nation that rejects God. They will all find the same end. That you see, it, it, it follows the same path every time. When, whenever a society or a person or individual, whenever they reject God, guess what they'll become? They'll become rebellious. Um, they'll lose any sense of morality. Uh, there's no shame. Uh, the institution of marriage is defamed. Gender is, is defamed. Man being made in the image of God is defamed. Life, we just kill people for no reason. Children, we just kill them. We don't even think about it. They become violent. 
This is what happens. I, I'm just glad we're America and nothing like this could ever happen to us. America was described as a, as a grand experiment. God took initially about 100 Puritans and then eventually about 30,000 Puritans, the best of the Reformation from England. And they settled on the east coast of the United States. Looking back on this, I was just looking back at some of my notes on these things. And in 1647, I love this, in Massachusetts, they passed the Old Deluder Satan Act. You know what the Old Deluder Satan Act was? It was that if you had a city of, of at least 50 people, you had to have a school. Why did you have to have a school? So you could teach children to read. Why did they have to read? So that they could read their Bible. We've got to teach these kids to read their Bible because the Puritans understood that if you ever get away, a society that loses its foundation in the truth of God's word is bound for destruction. We've got to teach our kids to read the Bible. Not just read it, but know it. Um, all the Ivy League schools. You know, Harvard was initially uh, founded to train ministers for the preaching and teaching of God's word. In fact, their original crest, their shield, was uh, three books. You had two books on the outside that were faced up and one book in the middle that was faced down. The two books on the outside, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The book in the middle, the wisdom of man. And the picture there that was that the wisdom of man always submits to the truth of God's word. Later on, guess what they did? They took the book in the middle and turned it up that now we're gonna put human reason on the same level as the truth of God's word. Uh, they went liberal, then Princeton was formed. Princeton went liberal, Yale was formed. Dartmouth was originally established to reach the American Indians after the first Great Awakening. Can you believe that? Founded as a mission-sending institution. The Constitution, a biblically informed law to hold leaders accountable. The Capitol, I've been to a lot of places. I've never seen a location more biblically saturated than our nation's capital. You, you can't turn a corner without being confronted with Scripture. And biblical figures like Moses... And the law of God. You know, there's no way around it. I, I know there's people who try to rewrite some of this stuff, but listen to me. Any objective understanding of our nation's origin would at least define these men as deists who understood that there is a sovereign God that we are accountable to, and he has established truth. He was the foundation. It was Alexis de Tocqueville, the French aristocrat who came to America. He wanted to see this grand experiment. He wanted to see it with his own eyes. And as he came here, he, he was impressed with, the one thing he was impressed with the most was the churches. And more than the churches, he was impressed with the pulpits where he said there is the firm, remember he's coming from England where they had already drifted. He comes over here and he says, these men are preaching the truth of God's word. And it was de Tocqueville who said that statement that you've probably all heard, that America is great because she's good. But if she ever ceases to be good, she'll cease to be great. Do you know what de Tocqueville, he understood. This country, if it ever gets away from the truth of God's word, 
when it ever starts to think that it's educated beyond the truth of God's word, that they don't need God's word anymore, then it won't work. And I think if you read his stuff, it's kind of like, I'm not sure they're going to make it. I'm not sure they can do this. Because he knew the sinfulness of man. A grand experiment, never been done before. I want to be clear that the best way to govern is through the Lord Jesus Christ, but until he returns, I believe the American governmental system is the best way to govern. However, it's not perfect. It's not without its problems. One, there's the problem of getting elected and staying elected. That these elected leaders would always feel the pressure between doing what is right and getting elected. Because doing what's right is not always popular, is it? And so the fear was that they would just devolve into a popularity contest and we would lose statesmen. That men and women who are governed by principles would be replaced by those who just simply give out the most goodies. Does that sound familiar? Two, a representative government demands a culture and a constituency that adheres to a moral standard. In other words, if the majority of this nation moved away from God and the idea of absolute truth and morality, it would be the death nail of democracy. Because listen, an immoral 51% can be just as dangerous as an evil and immoral king. Where do we find ourselves? It's a difficult place. Postmodernism has been invading our culture for decades. Postmodernism is the idea that there's no truth. There's no absolute truth. That truth is whatever you want it to be. It's moral relativism. In fact, I was watching an interview the other day and this guy sitting across from a man who's supposedly an expert on sociology or psychology or something and he says to him, I just want the truth. And the guy says, that's offensive. He said, that's offensive to me. He said, what, the truth? He said, yeah, that's offensive to me. This is where we're at. You can't debate these people because there's no truth. What do you, how do you know somebody's right or wrong if there's no truth? It's all just whatever you want it to be. You determine what is right and wrong. Everyone does what is right in their own, their own eyes. But it might be called a different name with postmodernism, but at the root of the problem, it's still the same, isn't it? It's called sin. And listen to me today. This is so important for us to hear. The problem is same, and so is the solution. The solution is Jesus Christ. The only hope for our nation is Jesus Christ. And I think if we're not careful, sometimes as Christians, we get so caught up in the media and all these other things that we would begin to think, this is the danger, we begin to think, maybe if we just elected the right guy. And every four years, we give it a go, don't we? We, th- we think, if we could just pass the right legislation, then we'd change it. Or if we could change the educational system of our country, then we would solve the problem. And listen to me, all those things are good things. We need to be involved in politics. And you better go vote this August. We recognize these folks up here who fought so that you could go to a ballot box and vote on the basis of truth. And if you won't vote, then listen, you will get the leadership you deserve. We got to go vote. It's a responsibility. It's a privilege. But I'm going to tell you, an election isn't going to fix this thing. 
We need to be involved in legislation, but we won't legislate morality. You're not going to change people with new laws. That just restrains them. It doesn't fix them. Because there's only one solution, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way to change a nation is to change the hearts of the people in that nation. And the only person who can change the heart of a person is Jesus Christ. So we need to be clear. That if you're frustrated with the state of our nation, don't sit around and complain. If you're really frustrated, if you really want to see it change, don't tell me you want to see it change. Don't tell me you're frustrated. Because if you're really frustrated and you really want to change, you'll tell your neighbor about Jesus Christ. You really want to see it change? Talk to that coworker. You really want to see it change? Talk to that student that sits across from you. It's the only hope we got. Listen to me. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. That the good news today is that anybody that will turn to Christ in repentance and faith, they'll be changed. And there's hope today, because listen to me, there's another generation of individuals that are coming up in this nation, and they are open to Christ. They're open to Christianity. We're already seeing it. Barna just did a study. Pastor Steve sent me the details on this stuff this past week as I was researching for this message. In 2021, they did a survey of about 1,300 teenagers between, I think, the ages of 13 and 18, and 80% of themselves would call themselves a Christian. Of that 80%, another 80% of that 80% said that evangelism was extremely important to them. And of that 80%, all of them in that 80% had had a faith conversation with somebody in their life during the past year. God is on the move. You go see at K-State, K-U-M-U, Student Mobilization, Christian Challenge. We are seeing students come to faith in Christ all the time, being discipled. As we speak, there's a group of about 500 students at Kaleo in Gulf Shores who went down there to be discipled and to go into a workplace and to learn how to live out their faith and share the gospel in the midst of a secular context. God is on the move. How about we join him? Listen, you can't sit on the sidelines and complain about what's going on. Get in the game. Let's pray like never before. Let's live the truth of the gospel because I believe we have a world that's, that's hunger, got a hunger for authentic Christianity. I don't, I don't believe, I don't know, maybe it'll happen, but the, the old style of the big evangelistic crusades, we're not seeing that. But I can tell you what we are seeing is men and women in fraternities, in schools, in workplaces, developing relationships with people whereby they have the opportunity to tell them about the hope of Christ and people are being changed. They're being changed by the gospel. It's the only hope for our nation, only hope for the world. The time is now. Do we have a hymn? We got a hymn. This hymn was written at the beginning of the Civil War. It's heavily influenced by the book of Revelation. Um, it was the favorite song of President Teddy Roosevelt. You know what I found out about Teddy Roosevelt? I was listening to a podcast the other day. That guy was shot in the chest and then went and gave a speech. I complain if I've got the sniffles. And, it, and he gave a long speech. What kind of men were we producing back then? 
It, this was his favorite song. It became the, the theme song for the great evangelist Billy Sunday. It could be heard each week on Billy Graham's radio broadcast. In fact, it was Billy Graham's mother who said, you gotta include this. This has gotta be a part of your radio broadcast. You wanna see something really cool, go watch. There's video of Ronald Reagan's first inaugural parade and this orchestra and choir stops in front of his booth there. And uh, they sing this song. And Reagan's just overwhelmed. And he begins to weep. It was one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s favorite songs. In fact, he used it to conclude his speech after the march from Selma to Montgomery when he got to the Capitol as he was talking with this vast crowd that was there. The question that was posed was, how long is this going to go on? How long will injustice rule the day? And he concluded by saying, not long, for my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. We look around our world today and so much immorality, rebellion, rejection of God. How long will it go on? How long will the patience of God endure? Can I tell you today? Not long enough. Now is the time. Today's the day. Why? My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Thought it was fitting today that we conclude on that that hymn. So let's stand together. If you're a Reach Church to Soto the Venue, why don't you stand with us? We're going to sing this battle hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. This was the part, if you watch the video of Reagan, this is the point where he just lost it. It says, as he died to make men holy, let us live to set men free while God is marching on. 
We're gonna sing that one. We're gonna sing this next verse, acapella. I just wanna hear the voices, you sing it out. Then Bill's gonna join up with us for the chorus. Let's sing it together. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me as he died to make men holy. How God is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Father God, we are so grateful today that you are marching on. God, you have loved us in our sinful condition. You very easily could have tossed us away. Broken and beaten by the sinfulness of our flesh and of the world, we deserved death. But you loved us. You came for us. Jesus, you died in our place, rose from the grave declaring your victory and declaring to all men that this victory can be yours through faith in Jesus. I pray if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, God, convict them in their heart of their sin, show them the beauty of their Savior, and I pray that they would run to you, that they would know today freedom, freedom from sin, free from Satan and a destructive path that leads to hell a freedom that leads them into life and life eternal. And God, for those of us that do know you, we thank you for the freedom we have in this nation to declare the gospel, that we can go out today and we can talk to our neighbor, our coworker, our friend. God, help us to live the gospel. Help us to preach the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.